years ago, the Standard Oil Company uh, went to a missionary in China, and they offered him a job. They said, we would like for you to work for us and kind of, you know, help us develop our interests in China for Standard Oil. And so they offered him this huge sum of money, and he turned them down. And so they went back, and they were like, okay, and they doubled their offer, and they said, we really want you to work for us and help us out in China, and he turned them down again. And so they said, well, what do you want? I mean, we can't pay you anymore. This is a huge sum of money. This is as much as we can give. They said, well, what's the deal? And he says, the, the money doesn't matter. The job is too small. He was a missionary. His job was to proclaim the gospel. He said, the money doesn't matter. The job is too small. And the job that Jesus had for the disciples was a huge task to take the message of the gospel into the world. They had an enormous job. We don't, they didn't even really know what they were signing up for, but they were about to find out here in chapter 10. Uh, in chapter 13, which we'll get to here in just a few weeks, uh, Jesus is talking to them about evangelizing. He's talking to them about telling people about the kingdom of God. And he tells this parable. He said that there was a man who planted his field. He planted, and it says specifically that he planted the field with good seed. And then as the crops began to come up and as fruit began to be produced, they noticed, the workers noticed that there were weeds among the wheat. And they went to the master and they're like, wait, master, didn't you plant good seed in your field? Like, why are there weeds in it? And he said, an enemy has done this to me. After we planted, an enemy had come through the field and scattered a bunch of bad seed, which came up as weeds, and you couldn't tell when they grew up together. They looked the same. They all looked like wheat, except for when the wheat was ready to be harvested, then they could tell which ones were the weeds. And they said, do you want us to go tear them up? And he said, no, don't tear them up now. Let's wait until the end. When the harvest is brought in, we'll separate them out. And then Jesus goes on to explain that he is the sower. He's the one that's sowing the seed. Okay, the field is the world. And the wheat that's growing up, those are the believers. And the weeds, the ones that need to be torn out, those are the ones that have rejected Jesus. And he's talking about how important evangelizing is because there are people right now that are ready to accept the gospel. They just need to hear it. Remember last, last week, a couple weeks ago now, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the fields to bring in the harvest. People are ready to accept the message of the gospel. We need people to go out and tell them about it. So he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, and then he gets ready to send them out to be the laborers. But Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him if they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And I've called this message the King's Commission. They are sent. Now, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news? Jesus isn't talking about pedicures. Okay. Back then, nobody would have had good looking feet. Okay. Can you imagine wearing sandals every single day? Dirty fields. Chris can. He wants to wear them on the beach, but not in dirty fields, not in rocks and all that kind of stuff. Their feet would have been disgusting. But what he's talking about is how beautiful are the people who bring the message of the gospel, that bring the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what gospel means is good news. How beautiful are those people? And in chapter 10, that's exactly what Jesus is getting ready to send the disciples out to do. He says, pray for laborers, and then he commissions them to go out and be the laborers. 
And two weeks ago, we talked about this odd group of men that Jesus surrounded himself with. These are the men that he was going to use to turn the world upside down. They weren't highly educated. They weren't great public speakers. Actually, it's kind of funny because when they stand in front of the Pharisees at one point, they're preaching and they're talking about Jesus. And they're like, aren't these guys ignorant fishermen? Like, what's the deal? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That was the difference between them being ignorant fishermen and preachers of the gospel is that they were with Jesus. And he commissioned them. And the reason he commissioned them is because they responded to the call. They were available and they responded to his call. And they took the good news all over the world. So our, our uh, text today is Matthew 10. We're going to do verses 5 through 15. These 12 that Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for that town. Pretty strong words. At Bethany Fellowship, here at our church, we have four non-negotiable pillars. These are the main focuses of our church and what we're about. And the first is the teaching of the Bible. We will always go verse by verse through the scriptures to get the full counsel of God. That way we can't skip over any of the parts of the Bible that we don't like, any of the parts of the Bible that might be difficult. So we go verse by verse through that. We're going to stay in the Word of God. Everything we do, everything we say will be filtered through the Word of God. The second is worship. Worship will always be a priority. We sing four songs right before service, and then we sing one afterwards. Uh, when I was growing up, we would sing for 45 minutes straight. Man, I mean, we would just get after it worshiping God. And there will be times when we get into a building where we'll just get together and we'll worship. And there might be Sundays where we sing six or seven songs. I don't know. But worship will always be a priority because it's a one-way expression from us to the Lord, thanking Him for who He is and what He's done for us. And worshiping the Lord is way more important than listening to me talk for 45 minutes, okay? So, nobody said amen. Okay, so... Worshiping is a huge priority. The third is serving. Right now we have some kind of service project that we do every other month. And as we get into the new space, as we renovate, and as we finish out that fellowship hall, it's going to open up all kinds of serving opportunities. It will only expand as we have that space. We'll be able to, you know, rent that out. or well, not rent it out. We'll be able to loan that out to the community to be able to use. Um, we'll be able to put a kitchen downstairs. and We'll be able to cook, you know, meals for people. We'll be able to um, minister all over over the place, and I'm very excited about the ministry opportunities and the serving capabilities that we're going to have once we get in there. Um, the fourth pillar that we have that will always be a focus is missions. Uh, 
And we've been able to support missions ever since we started. We've been giving two missions. And uh, I haven't done the final numbers for this year, but we will probably be in between fourteen dollars to $15,000 that we have given to missions this year, just out of our little body, which is huge. And we have a team that's going down to Guatemala in June, which is awesome. And every time we have one of our missionaries in town, we will invite them to come in and speak and tell us what's going on in their ministry and what God's doing through them. And missions is a focus because that is the last thing that Jesus told us to do. That's the last thing that he told his disciples to do. Now imagine if you had a loved one and they were going away indefinitely. They said, I'm going away. Here's a list of some things that I want you to take care of while I'm gone. I think you would, you would pay attention to that, right? You would want to remember that. I would get a post-it note. I am the post-it note guy, okay? I will not remember if I don't put it on a post-it note. And so you would want to remember those things. And this is the last thing that Jesus told his disciples. And it's in Matthew 28. I'm just going to read it out of here. Matthew 28, starting at verse 16, at the end of the book. We'll get to in just a few months, right? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Those were Jesus' last words to his disciples. I want you to go out. In Acts, we read that he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right? In Samaria, in Judea, and to the ends of the world. You're going to start here, and then you're going to go throughout the whole world. But that's not the way it started in the beginnings. In the beginning, he was just sending them to their backyard, so to speak. I'm sending you to your neighborhoods. I'm sending you to your hometowns. I'm sending you to your own country, and then I'm sending you into the furthest parts of the world. But it started very small. There's a lot of people, once they maybe talk to a missionary or they see a movie and they get really excited about missions and they want to go off to some foreign land and be a missionary, but they don't share the word of God here at home. They don't share with people, but they want to go out and do it out there. Better to cross the street before you cross the ocean, Right? Better to do it here than to go over there. Um, And Jesus is saying, why don't you go across the street first? Let's start small. Let's go across the street, and then we will expand out from there. Um, Jesus says first, he says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the first thing that Jesus does is he gives them focus. They needed a familiar field where they could concentrate their efforts. And just because it was narrow doesn't mean it wasn't important. He narrowed their field. But just because it was narrow doesn't mean it wasn't significant. You know, Jesus never left Palestine. He never traveled more than 200 miles from his birthplace. That's pretty amazing. He turned the world upside down through a group of men, never leaving more than 200 miles from his hometown. He ministered to some Gentiles, sure. And he actually ministered to some Samaritans. But those were mostly um, incidental, right? They were purposeful, but that wasn't his main mission. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the Jewish people. And practically speaking, um, as believers, our faith needs to be worked out, first and foremost, to the people who are right in front of us, 
right? It needs to be worked out practically to the people in your family, the people in your workplace, whatever your sphere of influence is, wherever you go in the community. Our faith needs to be worked out all around us to the people who are standing in front of us. And our giftings, abilities, all the things that God has gifted us with need to be worked out first, starting here in the house of the Lord and then moving out into the community. We read about this in Galatians chapter 6. It says, so then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially those that belong to the household of faith. Starts here, goes out from there. So the disciples were sent to their own people with a specific message and a specific mission. And ministries are most effective when they narrow their field, when they concentrate their efforts and they focus on the things that they do best. If they try to do all kinds of things, they try to, you know, they kind of get spread too thin and it gets diluted. So they kind of do the best when they focus. Um, but Christians, on the other hand, need to expand their focus. Um, you know, as Christians, it's been said that Christians are a lot like fertilizer, you know? If they're spread around, they do a lot of good. But if they start clumping together, they start to stink, right? So we are to do life together. We are supposed to meet together regularly, but we're not to clump together. We are to be those that are spread out, those that are sent out from here. We are to be ministers of his grace, So he gave them focus. The second thing he did was give them a clear message. He said, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, John the Baptist's message was very clear. Nobody was confused about his message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is coming. And then when Jesus started his ministry, he had the same message. Jesus started out by saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is here. I'm the Messiah. And then he gave you and I the commission to go out and say, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming back. The Messiah is coming back. Turn from your sinful lifestyle because he is coming back. We were given a clear message. Now, most of the world is going to reject the gospel message. That's just the reality. Most of the world is going to reject him. But it shouldn't be because the message is confusing. Because it's not confusing. It's very, very easy to understand. Sometimes people fail to understand because we don't uh, present it clearly. It's very simple. All of us are sinners. We're all broken. We all need restoration. We're all imperfect. We've all fallen woefully short of his perfect standard. And we are in need of a mediator. We are in need of forgiveness and restoration of our relationship to God. People have to first see their sin. We can talk about how God is love and all the attributes of him and all the things that he's done for us. But if people don't see their sin, if they don't see their need, for Jesus, then everything else is going to sound meaningless. That's when you go to people that are just, they're just awesome people. They would give you the shirt off their back, but they don't see their need for Jesus. You say, well, you should, you should become a Christian. And they're like, why? My life's pretty good. I'm a good person. People like me. I do good things, but they don't see their need, their sin. So that's when the word repent is a military term, actually, that means to turn around, do a 180, stop walking in that sinful lifestyle, start walking towards the Lord, because if you don't, you're going to perish in your sins. And the modern church has made a catastrophic error in trying to make itself relevant to the culture, because it's strayed from the message that Jesus gave us to preach. Repent. Because when you say repent, that offends people. And so we have changed the message. We stopped doing that. We started saying things like, God accepts you 
just like you are. That's a lie. God doesn't accept you just as you are. He loves you just as you are, but he can't accept you just as you are because you are a sinner. We are broken. We are sinful. We are cut off from him. Without Jesus, we are living in rebellion to him, and we deserve his wrath. So he cannot accept us as we are. He loves us as we are, and he wants to bring us out of that because of his love. And so seeker-sensitive churches have become very popular. They still are. Um, heavy on the grace, heavy talking about grace, very light on the consequences or sin if it's talked about at all. And if the message deviates from the gospel at all, people are unclear as to what the central message is. And so it devolves into secondary issues, um, things that you know we talk about with society. We talk about um, social issues, cultural or economic causes. We talk about Um, All these types of things that get way off topic of the gospel. And then the world is confused as to what the clear message of the gospel is. Listen, Satan will do anything to keep the message of the gospel from being preached. Or at least he wants it to be misunderstood. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. We should talk about social justice. We should talk about cultural issues. We should talk about economic causes and all of these things. And, you know, being agents of mercy and compassion. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But the clear message of the gospel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Our time is short. You need to get right with God. That is the main message that we have been given to tell the world. Anything other than that muddles the message and just dilutes the power of the gospel when we stray from it. The gospel only transforms society as it transforms people. If people aren't transformed, culture is not going to be transformed. And we see the results of that in our society today from the church straying off of the message. And we now live in an age of apostasy, right? We see people in record numbers denouncing their faith, walking away from the church, saying they no longer believe in that. The numbers of people that say they believe in God is at an all-time low right now in our country. So the message needs to be clear. Yes, it's going to need explanation, but it should never be complicated. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The message is about the king and living in his kingdom. Once we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, at our conversion... We become citizens of the kingdom. Um, We live in his dominion. We live in his lordship. Okay, lordship where he rules by divine will. And we live in his dominion until he calls us home. He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel, proclaim the kingdom. And then next, Jesus reveals the nature of his kingdom. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lippers, and cast out demons. Healing. Bring healing, bring new life, bring cleansing, bring freedom from bondage, bondage in sin. Jesus is compassionate and he is merciful. He's compassionate and merciful. Those are two Christ-like qualities that we should always be asking ourselves. Am I compassionate? Am I merciful? Okay, are we compassionate to those who are hurting, to those who are suffering? Are we merciful to people when it's in our power to help them out? So Jesus empowers his disciples and then he sends them out to be agents of his compassion and mercy, to dispense compassion and mercy. Uh, Years ago, I read a book called The Hole in Our Gospel, and it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. And it's written by the president of World Vision. And he talks about um, how, you know, 
the hole in our gospel all too often is meeting the needs of the poor and the needy and the hurting and the suffering. Those are the people that Jesus went to. He went to the sick and the hurting. And he said, if you took a Bible and you cut out, and some people have done this, where they cut out every verse or instance where it talked about compassion or giving to the needy or the hurting, you would have a Bible that is literally in tatters because so much of the scriptures talk about being agents of compassion and mercy in his name. In Ezekiel 18, we're told that a righteous man is one who does not oppose anyone, but restores the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. I read an article from May of last year, and it was listing out the percentage of people's income that they give to charity, and it was breaking it out by um, income chunks, right? And the results may or may not be startling, but they are this, that the more money people make, the less giving they become as a percentage of their income given to charity. Those that made $15,000 or less gave about 13% of their income to charity, But as you started to go up the ladder, the percentages started to decrease. And once you got over $100,000 a year, households that made over $100,000 a year were all the way down to 3%. 3% of their giving to charitable causes. And it just gets even smaller from there. So while the chunks might be bigger, right, the percentages are awfully small. It was talking about generosity. um, And we're the most generous country on the face of the earth, right? We're the, most, we're the most generous country in the world. But the world has very little use for the afflicted and the hurting. And what concern we see in society is really just residual fruit of Christian influence in our country. But in that culture, in the Jewish culture, what they were taking care of the needy and the hurting, they actually called that practicing righteousness. That was their way to practice righteousness, was to care for the hurting and the needy. Jesus told his disciples, he said, the poor you're always going to have with you. You will have countless opportunities to practice righteousness by giving to them. Compassion should always be a mark of a true follower of Jesus. So aside from giving, how do we walk this out practically? Well, what changed for the disciples and the people that they ministered to was when Jesus was brought into the conversation. When Jesus was brought into that situation, that's what changed things. And we bring Jesus into these situations when we pray. When we pray. I'm going to preach to myself right now. Prayer is not an easy thing to do. It is very difficult for us. Um, prayer heals broken lives. It brings his presence into people's lives, can cleanse them from wickedness and evil and sinfulness. Prayer unleashes power in the spiritual realm. That's why the enemy doesn't want you praying. The enemy knows what prayer accomplishes. And see, he will do anything to try to distract us from or keep us from praying. And so we need to pray correctly. A lot of times we get upset because we're like, well, I pray and nothing happens, right? Well, Jesus said when we pray according to his will, 
Okay, are we praying for his will to be done or are we praying for our will to be done? That's a really big difference. And when we pray for his will to be done, we can be at peace with whatever the results are because he's the one who's in control. God, change me, change my heart. This is what I want to see happen, but ultimately I want to be submissive to your will. So God, we pray for your will to be done in this situation, but here's my desire, Lord, and I want it to line up with what you want. And if you don't know what to pray, I would encourage you, Alicia and I were listening to a podcast um, yesterday when we were driving, um, just pray the Lord's Prayer. It's very simple. Twice in Scripture we see Jesus teaches his disciples. They say, teach us to pray. He gives them the Lord's Prayer. Is that a pattern? Is that a, a, a formula? No. We can use it as a guideline, as an outline of how to pray further, but I would encourage you that's a really good place to start is pray the Lord's Prayer. James 5.16 says, The fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. That's how we bring Jesus into the situation. Next, Jesus says, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Um, all that I have given you is free. It was, re- it was required faith. You needed faith to receive it, but there was no entrance fee, right? There was no cover charge for the gospel. Everything you received from me was free. Now you go out and give it for free. And as pastors and evangelists, uh, we're not to use the message of the gospel for selfish gain or for personal advantage. That's what he's talking about here. The gospel is for God's glory, not our personal prosperity. And even the world knows this. That's why there's such a hyper focus, such a spotlight on charlatans within the church and people that are flying all over the world asking people for money. They know that's wrong inherently. And Jesus said, freely you have given, you've been given, freely give. On a more personal level, I would uh, actually equate this to companies who promote themselves as Christian-owned just to get ahead, right? There are some companies who promote themselves as we're a Christian-owned company, but they do it purely for um, profit or purely for advantage, right? And I think we've all either heard stories or had experiences with companies who said they were Christian-owned companies that did not go very well. I've heard those stories. It would actually be better for them right? Just to be honest, do high quality work, to be above reproach, to do it with integrity and they surpass expectations. And then when those people found out that you're Christian, then they would be more open to hearing the message of the gospel because you're different, because the way you run your company is different, because you were a faithful witness doing the work as unto the Lord, not just in the name of the Lord, but doing it as unto the Lord. The apostles could have made themselves really wealthy if they decided to charge people for what they were doing. Can you imagine how much people would have sacrificed to have gotten one of the miracles that they were performing? They could have made themselves very wealthy. And in the book of Acts, we see a guy who had that very thought. There was a guy named Simon the Sorcerer. And he was a magician, and he was impressing people with all kinds of signs and wonders. The people actually said, this man, Simon, has the power of the gods because of all the things that he was doing. But he was simply inspired by demonic activity. And one day, the disciple Philip shows up. And he starts preaching the gospel, and this is in Gentile territory, and people are accepting the Lord. They are excited. They're getting convicted, and 
he believes. Actually, Simon the sorcerer becomes a believer, and, but unfortunately, he's not as concerned about his soul as much as he's impressed with the miracles that Philip is doing. And so word gets back to Jerusalem, to Peter and John, about what's going on in this city. And so they go there to check it out. And he says, well, you know, have you guys been baptized? They said, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. And in, so they start laying hands on people, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is falling on people, and their lives are changing, and they're speaking in tongues, and they're, you know, all kinds of new life is happening. And Simon sees this happen, and he goes up to Peter, and he's like, I want this power. Give me this power. How much money does it cost to get this power? And Peter tells him, he says, your money perish with you because you thought you could purchase the gift of God with money. He was only thinking of himself on how to get ahead. And Jesus warns his disciples here, there might be people that want to give you money, that want to pay you when they see what's happening, but you need to give freely as you have been given and God will meet your need along the way. Now, it's appropriate for those who are ministers of the gospel to be supported by God's people. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9. However, they do not put their services out to the highest bidder, right? They don't put them out or demand a fee that they feel like they deserve to be paid. And I would just say that there are a lot of Christian ministers that make a very, very good living going around ministering to the body. And I'll just leave that there. Um, I think, well, and they'll be accountable to God, right? Um, but as far as ministering to the people of God, Jesus says, you've been given freely. Freely minister to others. Okay, moving along. Uh, whatever town or village you enter, Find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. It says, find a worthy person. That means find an upstanding moral person, somebody that, you know, the neighborhood respects. And not just because they're wealthy, not just because of their influence or their position, but of who they are on the inside because of their character. Are, their character. are they of the family of faith? And all of us, need to surround ourselves with the family of God, with people of faith. And I'm not talking about isolation, okay? I'm not talking about isolation, but I am talking about insulation, all right? We do need to be surrounded by our brothers and sisters. We are to minister to the ungodly. We're supposed to do that, absolutely. That's the whole point of this message. We're supposed to minister to the ungodly. But if your association becomes ungodly, then that's going to be very harmful to you spiritually and it could hamper the ministry that you're trying to do. We minister to the ungodly, but our associations should still be godly. People will say from time to time, like, Nathan, Jesus hung out with sinners. He hung out with the bad people. You know, there's nothing wrong with me hanging out with these people. Well, yes, Jesus went to the people that the religious elite of that day wouldn't go near. He went, he said, I'm going to these people because they're sick spiritually. But they knew that he was a rabbi. They knew that he was speaking the truth of God. And they were never left the same because of it. He always left them changed. They were different because Jesus was there. And what I would say was, if you're hanging around people with questionable character, do they know you're a Christian? Okay, are you speaking the truth to them? And are they different because you're there? Or are you being changed by them? When people, when Jesus went into those situations, people's lives were changed. 
And when we go into those situations, people's lives should be changed. Because if we're being changed by that, then we have an ungodly association and we need to change that. Okay. And they were to stay there until the work in that town was finished. Don't keep your eye out for better accommodations. Wherever you stay, stay there until the work's done. Just because somebody else may offer you a better gig or a better room or better meals, just stay with you where you are. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain, right? You can be godly. If you can be content with your circumstances and what you've been provided, that is great gain. I think it's interesting because in that verse, that's where Paul says, I can do all things through the Lord, through God who gives me strength. We hear people quote that all the time. I can do all things through, through God who gives me strength. He actually said that when he was talking about being content. <laughs> I've been through hard times. I've been through good times. I've had lots, lots of stuff. I've had plenty, and I've been through depravity in all things. And so I can be content, and I can do all things through him who gives me strength. There is a sermon by a guy named Paris Reedhead, and it's one of the most impactful sermons that I've ever listened to. If you want to listen to a sermon, you need to listen to it. It's called Ten Shekels in a Shirt by Paris Reedhead, and you can find it on YouTube. There's not even any video. It's just the audio, and the audio is a little rough, but you've got to listen to it. It's amazing. And the text for this sermon is out of Judges 17. It says, now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was, on, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place, as in a place to minister. And he journeyed, and he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me, and be to me, a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Now, that sounds like a really nice story, and it would be if that's where it ended. He's looking for a place to minister, and Micah says, minister here, minister with me, I will take care of you, I'll provide for you, and so he does. But in the next chapter, we see the tribe of Dan, you have the 12 tribes, Dan is one of the 12 tribes, and they're traveling past Micah's house, they are going to their place in the promised land, and 600 men go up to battle, and they go past Micah's house, and they had heard that he had some religious articles there, that he had an ephod and some other things. And so they go in and they take all these things. They start ransacking Micah's house. And the Levite comes out and he starts to protest. What are you guys doing? And they said, hey, you know what? You're a Levite? Why don't you come with us? Like, why would you just be a priest here for this one home when you could be a priest to an entire tribe? Like, come, we'll provide for you. Come be our minister. And it says that when they said that, that the priest's heart was glad. He was happy when he got a better offer. And he went with them. He sold his service for the Lord to the highest bidder. And a good question we all need to ask ourselves is, are we ministering as unto the Lord, or are we ministering in the name of the Lord, but with selfish ambition? Are we just doing it to make ourselves feel better? Or are we doing it to get ahead in Jesus' name? Or are we doing it as unto him? And we've talked about this before. If that's all you're in it for, that's all you're going to get. There aren't going to be any eternal rewards if you're only in it for what it gives you. 
And I'll be honest, I struggle with this from time to time in terms of posting things on social media, um, especially, you know, as, as we grow and do service projects, posting stuff that we're doing as a church, because it's like, well, why are we posting it on social media? You know, are we trying to promote the church? Are we trying to, you know, pat ourselves on the back? Are we doing it, you know, so that other people see the good things that we're doing? And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying that when we serve, we need to check our hearts, our motivation for why we're serving, okay? Um, that we're not doing it just so we look good to other people. Jesus said that's what the Pharisees would do. And if anyone would not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust of your feet off from them when you leave that house or town. Now, the principle here is this. Concentrate your efforts on those who are receptive to hearing the gospel. You might remember back in chapter 7 where Jesus says, don't give to the dogs what is holy, and don't cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them and turn on you and tear you to pieces. Sounds kind of strange, but the point is this. You wouldn't go um, to the Golden Ox and chop up steak to feed to Fido, right? No way. That's like a $60 steak. <laughs> um, if any of you want to take me out for a steak dinner. Um, you wouldn't use your best jewelry to decorate the pig pen with. He said, why would you take something of immense value and give it to somebody who could care less? They, they really don't care. They reject it. Why would you do that? The gospel has to be presented, but for those who scoff at the truth or who might ridicule our faith, he says, don't waste your time there. Go to people who want to hear it. Jesus didn't spend his time trying to convince the Pharisees that he was the Messiah. He didn't spend his time doing that. He went to the people who were spiritually sick, the people who wanted to hear the message of salvation. He showed it practically by the words that he spoke and by the way he lived. His life was the evidence but he went to people who wanted to hear the message. A few weeks ago, we covered this when he, he told them, he said, I did not come to call the self-righteous, but I come to call sinners to repentance. Don't waste your time with people who have made up their mind to reject Jesus. Now that might sound harsh, but God's forgiveness and God's grace um, is available to anyone. It's available to everyone, but it's worthless to the person who won't accept it. Doesn't mean anything to them. And a lot of people choose to stay in the prison cell even though the door has been opened. Jesus releases the captives. He has opened the prison door, but you have to follow him. You have to walk out of the prison and start following him. But too many people are content to stay a captive. Shake the dust off your feet. When the Jews would leave Israel, when they would leave and they'd go into a foreign land, before they came back into the country, they would stop at the border and they would shake the dust off of their sandals, symbolically saying, I'm not bringing any of this pagan dirt. I'm not defiling the promised land, right? And they would shake off the dirt from their feet. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel in Antioch. So they're in Gentile territory. And the non-Jewish people are accepting the gospel. They are getting saved. They're excited. And it says that the word of the Lord was spreading throughout that entire region. But the Jews that were in that city were offended and they were getting upset that they were converting these Gentiles, that they were preaching Jesus. And it says that they stirred up a bunch of people to drive them out of town. So they literally drove Paul and Barnabas out of town. And it says when they were at the edge of the town, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust of their feet off at the leaders of the town. Uh, That was a not too subtle sign to them that you are now in God's hand. We are washing our hands of you. You are now in his, you have rejected his word. We're going to let him deal with you. And I would just say in our lives, it's way better 
to place people in God's hands and let him deal with them than for us to do that because we're very impatient. We have a very short fuse. At least I have a very short fuse. And it's way better for God to deal with them because he is long-suffering. He is patient. All right, let him chase them down. Um, I, there's a song I was playing for my dad before, and it's an incredible song. I don't, I don't remember the guy's name, but it's called um, God Loves Chasing Rebels Down. And that's what he does best, so let's let him do that. If he chooses to do it through us, great, but if people don't want to listen, we'll put them in his hands. Truly, I say it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Um, today, we find no trace of Sodom and Gomorrah. God completely wiped them off the face of the earth because of their wickedness, because of their evil. They reveled in their immorality. They reveled in, they celebrated their sin. The city was actually rotting from the inside out. Uh, We read in Genesis that Abraham's nephew Lot lived in the city. He shouldn't have been living there, but he did. And it says that he had two visitors. He had two visitors to his house, which were actually angels. And the angels had come down to check things out and to tell Lot, to warn him, you need to get out of here because God's going to destroy the cities because they're evil. You shouldn't even be living here. So we're taking you out. And when the men of that city heard that he had two visitors, they wanted to drag them out so that they could sexually assault them. That's how evil this city was. It was a vile place. Sodom and Gomorrah are used as synonyms for God's judgment on evil. And Billy Graham once said, said, if America continues on its current course, if it continues to spiral down the toilet bowl, and it has, things have gotten worse, then God's going to, and he doesn't judge America. If America keeps on its current course and God does not judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because he wiped them off the face of the earth for their evil. The same things that are happening here. But Jesus said it will be more tolerable for those two wicked cities in the day of judgment than it will be for the towns who reject the disciples' teaching. The towns that reject the message of the gospel will have a harsher punishment. Now, that doesn't seem to add up to me. Have you ever read that and wondered what that meant? What does that mean that they are going to have a harsher punishment than these two evil cities? Well, apparently, there's going to be different levels, different intensities of punishment or judgment at the judgment day. I don't know what that means. I don't want to know. I don't want to be on that side. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but Jesus is saying here that while Sodom and Gomorrah were evil and they deserved judgment, they never had the message of the gospel preached to them. Woe to those who have heard the message of the gospel, the truth, and still reject it. That's worse. So what does that mean for us heading into the new year? Um, After this, we're going to go over and we're going to hang up our banner at the new building. And people are going to see there's another church that's going to be preaching the gospel message. We have another church in Liberty, right, that's going to be there. And for the people that aren't saved, uh, the building will stand as a witness against them if they are not right with God, that they need to get right with God. If they're not saved and they're living in rebellion, then there's going to be a harsher punishment for that because they know the truth. And my prayer is that when people drive by that place, that the Holy Spirit would work on their hearts and that they would want to repent. They would walk through the doors and that they would be saved. That is my prayer. That is my hope for this year, that they would receive salvation. This building, it's actually kind of cool. This building is going to be renewed so that people can experience new life. That's what's going to happen. But even though we're working on getting into this building, we can't just stay huddled up inside those four walls. Can't be us four and no more, okay? 
We can't just stay in there all the time. The church is a base of operations, okay? We're to be sent out from there. As wonderful as it is to meet every single week and to be in small groups and to gather together, the church is a base. It's a hospital and a base of operations from which we're sent out. You don't want to stay at the hospital, right? You want, when you get in the hospital, you want out. Of, well, hopefully you don't want out of church as soon as possible. But this is a place where the sick get healed, right? Where the broken get restored. And then we go out to be ministers of his grace. And as we experience growth, yes, we want to see people come in. Yes, we want to see an influx of people and, and, and people get saved. But our real desire should be for the gospel message to go forth, for it to go out into the communities. And we're the ones that need to take that message. Um, it happens when we personally share Jesus with people, when we invite people to church, when we have conversations about him. Uh, it happens when we support the missionaries that go out and do the work of the Lord. And it happens through the service projects that we do, when we actually you know, show compassion and mercy tangibly. And as Americans, we tend to spend a lot of time focused on ourself. We're very self-centered, selfish people. But I would challenge you in 2023 to make this a year where you look outward, Instead of looking inward, we look outward. The disciples loved being with Jesus. That's what changed them. Now, when they were done with their mission, after he sent them out, they came back and they were excited. They were pumped. They wanted to tell everybody, all of them, all of the things that had done, that they had done through him. Everything that Jesus had empowered them to do, they wanted to come back and tell everybody about. And that's the way it should be at church, Right? We love Jesus. We're here because we love Jesus. When we go out those doors, we need to be those that are his ambassadors. And then when we come back and we meet together, we can tell each other, these are the things that God's doing in my life, through my life, in the lives of other people because I prayed this or we did this. That's how it should be here. So I challenge you in 2023 for it to be a year where we look outwards and we be his witnesses. We are his witnesses because we love him, right? Bible talks a lot about love. Love should change a person. It does change a person, right? His love should change us. When Hudson Taylor was a director of the China Inland Missions, he often interviewed candidates who said they wanted to be missionaries. And on one on occasion, he met with a group of young applicants and he asked them, why do you want to be a foreign missionary? And, you know, one of them would say, well, I want to be a missionary because Christ commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And another one said, well, I want to be a missionary because there's millions of people out there that are perishing without Christ. And some of the others gave different answers. But then Hudson Taylor said this. He said, all these motives, however good, will fail you in times of testing and trials and tribulations and possible death. There is but one motive that will sustain you in a trial and testing, namely the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Because the disciples loved him, they were obedient to him when he sent them out. Our love for him should change us when we go out and we take his message to others. If you have a love for Christ, you can be a witness no matter where you are sent. We've been commissioned. You all have been commissioned. You've all been given a clear focus, a clear message, and he gives us the ability to carry it out. Amen? That's what he does. So my prayer for us this year is that we are those that look outward, look for opportunities to be his ambassadors of compassion and mercy.